Would you turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still pleasing men, I should not be a servant of Christ. The main truth now that underlies this text in Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 to 10 is that there is only one gospel. And then growing up out of that underlying terrain of truth, there are three statements which we need to hear very much today because there's nothing happened in the intervening 20 centuries to make them any less relevant for us. One, it is astonishing when a person hears the gospel, begins to believe it, and turns away from it to another gospel, which is no gospel. Two, a person who rejects or perverts the gospel of Christ is accursed. And three, the person who is a servant of the gospel, lives to please only God, not man. That's the outline of the message. So let's go back and take it just a piece at a time. The underlying truth is that there is only one gospel. In verse 6, Paul says that the Galatians are turning away to what he calls a different gospel then he realizes that that could communicate something very wrong. And he qualifies it immediately in verse 7. Not that there is another gospel to turn to, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel. Now, I think verse 7 is very clear in what it teaches. There is no other gospel than the one Paul preached when he established those churches. To be sure, in verses 6 and 7, the people, whoever they are, will run into them again and again, in verse 7, are using the term gospel to designate their teaching, but it is no gospel, but a perversion, according to the apostle. Now that truth, there is only one gospel, has two big implications for us today. The first one is this, it is a forthright, radical denial that there is a pluralism or a universalism which says we're all on different roads but have the same heavenly divine destination and salvation. That's not true according to this text. That concept of a universalism has a very popular form has a very scholarly form, but no biblical form. If what is meant by it 
is that you can reject the gospel Paul preaches and still be saved. That's not true, according to this verse. There are other religions. There are other religious leaders. There is no other good news. And what makes the underlying truth here so powerful in this text is that the alternative gospel, in quotes, that is being offered in the church is not on the order of Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam, something sort of uh, far away and romantic. It's on the order of an in-house distortion. It was promoted by people who call themselves brothers, according to chapter 2, verse 4. It was being taught by people who knew James and probably came from Jerusalem. They call themselves Christians. This is an in-house affair, not just an exotic, faraway religion that everybody knows is wrong. And so I draw out a second implication from this main underlying truth, and that is that doctrinal maturity in the church is not a luxury, it's a necessity at Bethlehem. If a different gospel, which is no gospel, can spring up inside the church, then surely we must make it our aim to be rigorous and discriminating in our doctrinal thinking. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, do not be babes in thinking, in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature, be experienced, be good at it. Now Galatians is one of those books in the Bible that is probably better suited than any other for helping us refine our understanding of the essence of the gospel. That's what we want to do over these next weeks in this series. The essence that cannot be replaced and cannot be altered without bringing someone under a curse. I sense a, tra um, a tragic pattern in history and in the churches. See if you don't uh, recall this from your reading or maybe you've experienced it firsthand if you've lived long enough. Renewal breaks forth in a church because of some new vision of the gospel and work of the Holy Spirit. And hearts are filled with love to Christ and lips give expression to his praise and his glory. And the church becomes alive with a new concern for evangelism and justice. And things start to change and there's a dynamic that everybody's excited about. But in the rise of emotional fervor, there becomes an impatience with doctrinal precision and refinements because doctrinal precision requires thinking and thinking is felt to be an enemy of feeling and therefore it is pushed to the periphery at best. There's a widespread sense then that the Holy Spirit, bless his name, will protect us from all doctrinal error. And the thought that one must think hard and study and work is not only a threat to joy, but a failure of faith in the Holy Spirit. And the result 
over a generation is the emergence of a people whose understanding of biblical teaching is so hazy and so imprecise that they are sitting ducks for the Galatian heresy. And it arises right in their midst. Paul said in Acts 20, verse 30, to the Ephesian elders, from among your own selves will arise men speaking distorted things to draw away the disciples after them. Not from outside where the bad guys live. And Paul said that what he had done for three years to guard them from that happening was this. Verse 27 in Acts 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. My prayer for Bethlehem and for myself is that when my ministry is done, I'll be able to say, your blood is not on my hands because I have not shrunk from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So, the underlying truth of the text is that there is one gospel and one gospel only, and there are two implications of that. Namely, there is no such thing as a biblical universalism that says you can reject the gospel and still be saved. And two, doctrinal precision and rigor is no luxury. It is a necessity for long-term church health. Now, out of that basic truth, there spring up three statements. First, it is astonishing when someone hears this gospel and turns away from it to an alternative. Paul says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. And if you read the verse carefully, you see there are two reasons in that verse why he's so astonished. If you turn away from the gospel, you are turning away from God. And that's astonishing. A God not only who is just out there waiting, but a God who's summoning, a God who calls into his fellowship. Don't let anybody ever tell you that a concern with doctrine is impersonal. If you... Turn away from the true doctrine of the gospel once for all delivered. You're turning away from a person, Paul says in this verse, the person of God. The gospel is a very personal call of God into fellowship with him. And the second reason in this verse that it is so astonishing when you turn away from the gospel is that you are turning away from grace. Galatians 5.4 says, explaining what was happening in the Galatian churches like this, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. If a person begins to hear the gospel, starts to believe it, gets into the church, but then is enamored by some alternative doctrine and falls away. He is falling away from the most precious thing that God can offer, 
grace. Paul is stunned. He is stunned that the churches of Galatia would do that after he had so quickly portrayed Christ crucified. Galatians 3.1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Picture Paul back in Antioch. I just closed my eyes when I was reading that and said, here he is having a great time building the saints up in Antioch before he heads out on another missionary journey. And all of a sudden, here comes word from Derby, Lystra, Antioch, Iconium. And the people walk in and say, Paul, they're leaving the gospel. They're turning away to the legalists and returning to those old elemental spirits trying to earn their way into sanctification. And Paul just puts his face in his hands. He can't believe it. He is stunned. He is astonished and wonders if his work is in vain. That's the first statement. It is astonishing when a person leaves the gospel. Second statement that grows up out of this truth that there's only one gospel. Namely, rejecting or perverting the gospel leaves a person under a divine curse. Verses 8 and 9. If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you the gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which we preached, that which you received, let him be accursed. That's an awful thing to call down a curse on an angel of God. That is a daring Statement in verse 8. The word repeated here is anathema. Anathema means, according to Romans 9, 3, cut off from Christ. And according to first Th Second Thessalonians 1, 9, subject to eternal punishment. It says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, that those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When a person rejects the gospel, the free, gracious gift of God for the forgiveness of sins and to bring a person under his wonderful kingship, when a person rejects that or twists it to fit his own proud desires, he abides under a divine, eternal curse. And the thing that's so terrifying about the prospect of that is that it is torment plus unendingness. And the reason I think that Paul is calling down this curse not only on the false teachers, but on anybody who rejects the gospel is because in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 16, he uses the same word anathema like this. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Paul does not have a cotton candy concern for the gospel. He does not enter into controversy and smile and shake hands when he's done and say to each his own. For Paul, the gospel of Christ is the point at which the awesome eternal life of God 
touches the foul, sinful life of man with an offer of grace. And when man in his sin spurns that offer of grace, somewhere, somebody in the universe must rage against the crime, against God. Oh, how we need to meditate on the horror of rejecting the gospel. And not skim quickly over these verses on to something positive, or only positive helps. That's not true. Satan has, has done an amazing trick in America, the Western world, with television and radio. He has used television and radio, especially the entertainment dimension, to create in our mind a, a mindset that is so trivial, banal, petty, earthly, we do not have the capacity to feel horror at the word anathema. We don't have the capacity to believe it because we have been so numbed by earthiness, by this world. We need, oh, how we need to guard ourselves against the barrage of eternity denying entertainment and information. And I say that to you who are in the church, not just to the worldly worldlings. The church, it seems sometimes, is just as set on getting as much maximum entertainment day in and day out as everybody else. And it simply deadens the mind to ultimate reality that ought to utterly stun us with its horror, like the word anathema. We need to try to cultivate a childlike imagination. I've been working on this. To try to cultivate a childlike imagination. So that when a reality like let him be accursed hits us, we experience something like what a little child experiences the first time he hears a peal of thunder that cracks against the line in his backyard and sends him running. Or perhaps what we feel when I felt my first earthquake, February 9, 1971 in Pasadena, California. A horrifying experience. No place to go when the mountains shake. Or perhaps what you feel when you experience your first awful storm at sea in a small boat and the waves are as high as that ceiling. We have to cultivate somehow. We have to come alive in our imaginations. Lest God speak to us words that have no more effect than water off a duck's back. The wrath of God is not revealed for us to say, hmm, yes, that's true. And turn the page and yawn. The wrath of God is revealed in scripture first to shake unbelievers out of their stupor. But also for us. It is revealed 
to take the swagger out of the Christian walk and to take the cocky twang out of the Christian talk. And it will if we don't rush over them, but just ponder verses 8 and 9. Roll it on the tongue of your heart until you begin to taste how bitter it is. Finally, the third statement that grows up out of this one truth that there is only one gospel is this. The servant of the gospel strives to please God alone, not people. Verse 10. Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I should not be a servant of Christ. Now, why did he say that? What connection does that have with verses 6 to 9? Well, I think it goes like this. In verses 8 and 9, he has just said something that will win him no friends. Let him be accursed is not the kind of thing you say when you're trying to win friends and influence people. And so he feels in verse 10, he has to render an account for why he's willing to talk like this. And the reason, he says, is because... Pleasing Christ on my priority list is right here. And pleasing men on my priority list is right here. Two things are at stake when the gospel is perverted and twisted like it was being in the churches of Galatia. One is the glory of Christ. And two is the salvation of sinners. If the gospel is perverted... The all-sufficiency of the cross of Christ crashes in dishonor. And if the gospel is perverted, the way for sinners to be saved is blocked. Therefore, if Paul is to serve Christ, who wills that his cross be exalted and that sinners be saved, he's got to get angry at perversion. And let the chips fall where they will as far as pleasing people goes. The glory of Christ and the good of those who may yet believe is at stake. And so he speaks unpleasant truth. Now, what's the lesson we should learn out of verse 10 for ourselves? Let me say, first of all, what is not. And here I am taking a, a gentle shot at some of my fundamentalist brothers. The, the meaning is not the more people you can displease, the more spiritual you are. It was never Paul's aim to, to, to displease people. That was never his aim. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 32, Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please all men in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. In Romans 15, 2, he says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to edify him. For Christ did not please himself, but the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell on me. In other words, it is good to please your neighbor. 
if pleasing your neighbor will save him or edify him or glorify God. Don't make it your aim to displease people. Make it your aim to edify people and glorify God. And then it doesn't matter anymore whether or not you please people. You know where that leaves us? That leaves us with an unbelievably great need to have the Holy Spirit give us wise hearts. Who but Jesus can know when to say, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, and when to say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Who but the Holy Spirit can say when to rage and when to weep? We need the Holy Spirit and we need wisdom. Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The most thrilling thing about verse 10 for me, this is a personal application which I hope will excite you as well, what I love about verse 10 is that the absoluteness of the Lordship of Christ is so gloriously liberating. Here's what I mean. If you live just to please Christ, you're free from having to try to please this person and then this person and then this person and this group and this group when they all have competing desires on you and tear you apart inside. You're free from that. It's liberating to have one master whom you try to please in every situation. And it brings into your life integrity. Everything is integrated. If there is one person to please in everything, everything relates to one person and has unity. Your life has coherence. You're not just ripped to shreds all over the place. Shall I take this vacation? Shall I attend that Movie with its rating? Shall I read this book? Shall I make that purpose? Shall I accept this job? Shall I go out on this date? Shall I marry this person? One person to please in every decision. What a freeing thing it is to only orient yourself in every decision on one person. Sometimes... When you do that, you will please people. And that'll be great. You'll feel so happy. I feel happy when you like my sermons. But sometimes when you try to please the Lord, you displease people. And then you feel bad. But that's, that's okay. There is nothing more thrilling than a single-minded life. It is liberating and full of joy, and that joy compensates for all the negative criticism that may come your way when you're trying to do the will of God. So let me just try to wrap it up now with a summary. In this text, there is one underlying truth, namely one gospel and one gospel only. Then, up out of that truth, there come three statements. One it is astonishing 
when a person leaves this gospel because they're leaving God and they're leaving grace. Two, if you reject the gospel or pervert it, you're under a curse. If you stay there, doesn't mean if you reject it once, you're under a curse. It means if you go on rejecting it, you choose curse. And that's an awful and a horrible thing. The great positive third thing that comes up out of this truth is that the person who lives from the gospel, who has his life rooted in the gospel, has the glorious freedom, number one, forgiveness from all of his sins. Past, present, future. Utterly free from sin. And then, secondly, coming into his life is a liberty and integrity and a joy that comes from not having to please anybody but God. And to know that the Christ who embodies God, who is his master, wills one thing, and that is your welfare and not your evil. And that's the best news in all the world. And now may the God of this one gospel and this one Lord give us the power to believe the one gospel and please the one Lord. Amen.